Amen. Wow. Hallelujah. You know, I wanted to ask you a question. What determines the value of something? In your eyes, what determines the value of something? Lathan, come up here to Brother Bill. Come on, buddy. If y'all don't know, this is Lathan. Lathan is one of our littlest young people. Come on up here, buddy. You can run. He knows he's not supposed to run in church. Amen. <laughs> How are you? Are you good? Say, I'm good. Tell him. Say, I'm good. <laughs> that was I'm good. That was I'm good in Lathan. Um, can everybody see what that is? Can everybody see... What that is. <laughs> We're going to find out which one Lathan values the most. Are you ready? <laughs> Just see if I must reach. Which one do you want? boy. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, incidentally, that was, uh, that was Chad's favorite candy bar, and this was my $10. Amen. So you see who won. Amen. Good job, Lathan. What determines the value of something? You ask a kid 10 bucks or a candy bar, they're going to choose the candy bar. Most kids like quarters more than they do like paper money. Why? Because quarters are shiny and pretty. We all have things that we consider valuable. God forbid that your home catch on fire. What's the first thing you'd run to grab on your way out? Family pictures. Why would you grab family pictures? Because they're valuable to you. My family pictures wouldn't be valuable to you, but your pictures would be. So far this year, we've been looking at the characteristics of disciples that should have great value in your life. Because you can't make a disciple until you are a disciple. Did you hear that, church? You can't make a disciple and fulfill God's command, Christ's command, to make disciples until you are one yourself. Paul calls these characteristics the fruit of the Spirit because they are attributes of God that are in every believer even if they don't show it. I pray that before today's message is over, you're going to realize that the fruit of goodness is a very valuable fruit. And that it is a fruit that is always in season. But what is goodness? And have you got a little goodness in you? That's my question to you today. Have you got a little goodness in you? What is goodness? First of all, goodness is doing the right thing for the right reason. One of our problems is that the word good is much the same as the word love. For instance, we love our children. But we also love pizza. We also uh, may love a diamond ring. 
We may love a beautiful sunset, but every one of those kind of loves are entirely different, right? It's the same with the word good. I may say, man, I had me a good meal. I may say, you know, she's a really good person. Or I may say, you know what, we had a really good cry together. But all those goods are different, aren't they? So let's look first at how the word good is used in the Bible. For instance, in Genesis we find that after God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them, do you remember what he said? It is good. So, what does that mean then? Well, we know that when God looked at all that he had done, he was pleased with that. So maybe we could say goodness then is something that pleases God. We could take it a, a step further then and say uh, a good person is a person who pleases God. But the Bible also tells us that God is good. What makes God so good? Well, it's things like the fact that God is pure. That God is holy. What makes God so good is that he's forgiving. That God is generous and pours out that generosity on you and I. So if we're good, then all of those qualities are going to be true of you and I as well. Let me give you another definition of goodness. It's really pretty simple, but if you remember this definition of goodness, then you'll begin to see the value of goodness in your life. Goodness is doing the right thing for the right reason. As I thought about that definition, I wondered, can I do the, wrong, or the right thing for the wrong reason? Certainly. I can do the right thing for the right, right, wrong reason. I can go to church only to be seen. I can go to church just because it's a bad habit. It's, it's the right thing to do, but that's certainly the wrong reason to do it. Can I do the wrong thing for the right reason? One that jumped out in my mind was, is that man who steals to feed his family. Feeding his family is certainly the right thing to do, but stealing is the wrong way to do it. Neither of those exemplify goodness. Goodness is doing the right thing for the wrong, the wrong, the right thing for the right reason. So what does goodness look like? Well, as always, it looks like Jesus. Amen. Uh, let's look at this demonstration of goodness, for He is always demonstrating goodness to us. We've been reminded again and again that Jesus is the perfect example; that He is a great example for us to follow. When you want perfect love, what do you do? You look at Jesus. When you want joy or perfect peace, what do you do? You look at Jesus. And the same thing is true of goodness. Now, I don't want you to think for a second that being good came easy for Jesus. Because he didn't. Jesus lived in the flesh just as you and I live in the flesh and Satan tempted him just like he tempts you and I over and over again. Today we're going to look at one time when 
Satan was tempting the Lord. And in Luke chapter 4, he actually tempted him three times. He tempted him first with the temptation of selfishness. The second time, he tempted him with the temptation of popularity. And finally, he tempted him with the temptation of compromise. Do you think that Satan still uses those same tactics on us today? You better believe it. So let's look at the first one. The first temptation of selfishness in Luke chapter 4, the word of God says, And the devil said to him, said to Jesus, If, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. That's an age-old struggle, you know it? It's an age-old struggle between self-centeredness and love for others. What are you talking about, Brother Bill? Well, it all started way back in a place called the Garden of Eden. And it continues today. Society tells us that as long as we have food, as long as we have nice clothes, as long as we have a nice home, as long as we have a good automobile, we're able to live in comfort. And guess what? That makes you a success. You ought to be proud of yourself that you've been able to be such a success. Society tells us that we ought to focus on ourselves. But here's Satan trying to get Jesus to focus on himself. He tempts Jesus to turn these stones into bread. Now, you have to understand that Satan will always tempt you in your area of greatest weakness. And Jesus had been fasting for 40 days. He was very hungry, and it would have been so easy for him to buckle under the pressure to use his power and turn those stones into something to eat. But do you really understand what Satan was trying to do here? If he could just get Jesus to focus on his own wants. If he could just get Jesus to think about making things easy for himself. If he could just get Jesus to think about taking the easy way out. Then he would be successful. If Satan could get Jesus to think this way, then Jesus would never be willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. And he certainly would not have been willing to pay the price for your sins and mine. He would never have been willing to go to the cross for you and I. If Jesus had been first concerned with his own needs, then he never would have gotten around to being concerned about ours. But because Jesus did come to do the will of the Father, he knew the most important thing was not himself. His most important concern was me and you. So he says, it is written, man does not live. By bread alone. He did the right thing for the right reason. Now let's take a look at this second temptation. This temptation to compromise. Uh, in verse 5. Then the devil taking Jesus up on a high mountain. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
Do you hear the power of Satan there? Showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all this will be yours. My, my, my. It is amazing to me that Satan has been given that much power. That is one more heck of a temptation. But then I think about the same temptations for us to compromise. This week, 84-year-old Gloria McKenzie bought a lottery ticket at a public supermarket in Zephyr Hills, Florida, and became the single largest winner in lottery history. $590.5 million. And then I read about another man uh, on up into his 70s, Melvin Wilson, who had won $500,000 four times this decade in the lottery. One of his friends said, you need to quit hogging all the good luck. Amen. But it's amazing to me that every week people line up by the tens of thousands. Line up by the tens of thousands to buy lottery tickets fantasizing about uh, buying a new home and buying a new car and taking exotic vacations and doing all those things that they never could do otherwise. Here it is, Satan says. Here it is. I control all the people of this world. They're serving me. So why don't you and I make a deal? You don't need to set your standards so high. Let's make a deal. Just compromise with me, and all of this can be yours. Is Satan using that same temptation on you? Are you compromising with that you know is wrong? Do you do things just so you can get more and more and more and more? You know, there's nothing wrong with material things. God gave those material things to us. But who is really the owner? We talked about this in Sunday school today. Who really owns what you have? You better believe it. God owns what you have. He has placed you as the steward. He has placed you as a manager only. Yes, to provide for your family. Yes, to get the kids through school. Yes, to provide assistance for the church. Yes, to give back to Him. But it's His. It ain't yours. All this to get more and more. Is God the owner of what you have? Or are you the owner? And you just give Him a portion of what you got. If God's the owner, he's just loaning me everything I've got. It's just mine on loan. And it's my responsibility then to be a good steward, a good manager, and make sure that God is honored in every way that I use it. Jesus did the right thing and in verse 8 said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 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 So Jesus did the right thing, and he did the right thing for the right reason. But there's a third temptation. It's a temptation of popularity. Read with me in verse 9 of Luke chapter 4. Then he brought Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle up on the steeple of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he will give angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands he shall bear you up, lest you even dash your foot on a stone. Boy, what was he doing there? There Satan is taking scripture and manipulating it, taking it out of context, using it for his own evil purposes. He's tempting Jesus to do something amazing, do something spectacular that will amaze all the people, that will show them that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the powerful one, that he is the anointed one. Why don't you just show them, Jesus? Why don't you just show them? Why bother spending three and a half years walking to and fro from Galilee? Why bother hanging out with stinky fishermen and tax collectors who call themselves your disciples? Why do all that? Jesus, if you would just do something miraculous like throwing yourself down from the steeple right there in front of the leaders of all Israel... Then God's angels would swoop down. They'd save you. They don't even want you to stub your toe. They would save you. And man, everybody would follow you. And then if you do it again every now and then, well, people would come from far, far away just to see you. Why, you'd be the most popular man in all Israel. What a temptation that was. What a temptation that was. And it wasn't the last temptation that Satan brought to Jesus. He did it again while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Do you remember the people that surrounded the cross while he hung there? Do you remember what they said? The same thing that Satan said. Jesus, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come on down from there? If you're the Messiah, why don't you save yourself? Come on down from that cross. Why don't you come on down? Why don't you save yourself? Come on down and that'll prove that you're really the son of God. And then we'll follow you. We'll follow you all over the place. What a big temptation that must have been. You know why? Because Jesus could have done it. He could have come down from that cross. He could have saved himself. But here's something he couldn't do. He couldn't have saved himself and you too. And so he chose to stay on that cross. And Jesus said to Satan in verse 12, Do not put the Lord God, your God, to the test. And in verse 13 he said, When the devil finished all this tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. But Satan didn't stay away very long. He kept on tempting the Lord Jesus. And I don't ever want you to think that it was easy for Jesus to be good. Because he was in the flesh just like you. And here's what Jesus had to do. 
He had to deliberately, say deliberately. He had to deliberately do the right things for the right reasons. One of the deepest, most influential uh, messages that Beverly ever taught me was to do the right thing. Is that profound or what? Is that deep? Is that theological to you or what? Do the right thing as do it for the right reasons. I wonder if it's uh, easy for us here at Bethel to focus more and more on more spectacular services and bigger and more spectacular ministries just for the sake of popularity. Or are we doing it because the right thing to do is focus on Jesus for the right reasons? But you know what? I'm a practical kind of guy. I understand what the scriptures say, and I understand that I ought to be doing the right things for the right reasons. But you know what? I need to know how. I need something practical. I need something I can put my fingers on. I need to know how can I display goodness? How can I do it? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of the good tree and the bad tree. He said that the good tree produces good fruit and the bad tree produces bad fruit. Some of y'all listening. And he says the good tree can't produce bad fruit and the bad tree can't produce good fruit. And then he says, if the good tree does not produce good fruit, you know what we do? Cut her down, throw her in the fire. Why? Because it's worthless. Listen to what he says now. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you'll recognize if they're good or not. By their fruit. So the question to you today is, what kind of fruit are you producing? What kind of fruit are you producing, good or bad? As you look at the fruit in your life, do you see a little bit of goodness in there? Do you see it? Well, I'd like to share four quick ways that we can display goodness. Number one, we can display God's goodness by being forgiving. Listen to what the Word of God says. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, in verse 14, Jesus said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will Will your Father in heaven forgive you? If you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. Those are frightening verses. Those are frightening verses because if you're harboring a grudge, if you're clinging to the past, then you will not receive forgiveness because you are harboring an unforgiving spirit. Don't hold a grudge. Don't cling to the past. The first step to doing the, the right thing for the right reason is to be forgiving. Here's the second way to display goodness, and that is to be pure. We can display the goodness of God by being morally, say morally, we can be morally pure. 
Now that goes against the grain in everything in our society. It seems like that most people want to embrace impurity rather than purity. Do you remember Gary Hart? Gary Hart, he withdrew his run for the presidency. Why? Because he had an extramarital affair that was exposed back then in the 80s. Why nobody would knowingly vote for someone who had cheated. But recently, Gary Hart said this. He said, our nation has matured now, and now we freely elect candidates who have had extramarital affairs. I got news for him. There's one man standing here that wouldn't. Amen. Now, I don't know if she would say it today, but I do know she said it back years ago. Dolly Parton said, cheating is okay as long as no one gets hurt. Raquel Welch said, men have sexual flings. It's okay. Just expect it. Men, if you're here, say amen. amen. That is a lie straight from hell. It's not okay. It's not okay. The Bible doesn't say any of those things. If you're going to be a good person, then you need to keep your life pure before God. There's a third way. You can display goodness, and that is to be gracious. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are in Christ. We are a new creation. Why are we new? We're new because God has changed us. He's done a remarkable work in our life. We are different now. And a man named Robert Keller wrote this. He said, it is the good person, the gracious soul, the generous heart, who helps the downtrodden. You know, there's someone always worse off than you. You don't have to look very far to find someone who's worse off than you. And it is the gracious person, the one who has the heart of compassion, who looks around and sees others suffering and who need his help. And wherever he can, he reaches out and he helps them. He doesn't just think about it. He doesn't just pray about it. He does it. Others may never know about it. They may never hear about his compassionate act. You may have performed many good acts in your life. And you know what? Nobody ever knew them, right? Let me rephrase that. Maybe you've done a lot of good acts in your life and nobody ever knows anything about them, right? I hope you've done a lot of good acts. But here's the promise. Even though you've never received a thank you from them, here's one promise. If you're gracious and you're good to others, one day you're going to hear the voice of God himself saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Friend, that's all the recognition you'll need. You may not need a thank you from that person. You may not need appreciation from that person. You just do it. Be good and be gracious. Finally, we express goodness by being generous. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. What does that mean? That means he's poured it out on you. It's so much love that you cannot even 
receive it. Our God is a giving God. He has given and given and given. God loved the world so much, he gave his only begotten son. He gives and he gives and he goes around and gives some more. So if you and I are going to participate in the goodness of God, do you know what we ought to be doing? Giving. Giving. We ought to be generous. But that's kind of a touchy subject. I got to start talking about y'all's checkbook and it gets a little touchy, don't it? But what about your time? Some of you get real touchy about that. But we should give cheerfully, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we give because God has given us so much? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we give because it's the right thing to do? Especially when you do it for the right reason? Someone said, you never look more like God until you're giving. You never look more like God than when you are giving. So don't give out of guilt and don't get because Brother Bill said so and don't give out of obligation. Give because it's the right thing to do. Well, after having all that said about goodness, let me say this. Goodness will never get you into heaven. No matter how good you've been, it'll never get you into heaven. You'll never be good enough to get there. It's only through the mercy of and grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone, the only name by which man might be saved. But oh, how precious, how precious is in the sight of God are His children who are good. His children who are filled with forgiveness, filled with purity, filled with grace, filled with generosity. How precious in the sight of God are those. I mentioned earlier that Jesus, that the Lord God Almighty himself was the ultimate example of generosity. But one thing you have to do about generosity is when it's extended to you, you must receive it. And today is an opportunity for you to receive the generosity of God. For God gave his only son that if you would only believe that he is who he said he is, that you might be saved. It's amazing to me that God would love sinful human beings that much. But he's a good God. The Lord is good. If you'd like to receive his goodness today, during this song, you just come right up front. I'll show you what the word of God says about being saved by the goodness of God. This is your opportunity. I pray you be faithful and willing to do it. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness that you lavished on us. We who are so undeserving. Lord, we who are so sinful and 
oftentimes unremorseful. Father, I pray in the name of Christ Jesus today that if there's someone who has not received this precious gift you give, help them know that all they have to do is just receive it. They just have to say, yes, God, I received this gift. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I must turn from my sin. I know that Jesus is the Savior. I believe in Him. I believe He is the Son. And the only way I can be saved is through Him. Lord, I believe. And I trust in Christ for my eternal life. Father, bless that one. Speak to them as only you can. So that you might be glorified and your kingdom expanded. All for the glory of your Son, Jesus the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.